Thank you for checking out this sermon video here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. You are joining us for our series called Radical Red Letters, Kingdom Living in a Chaotic Land. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text new to hope to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today and enjoy the sermon. This week, I came across a definition in conversation with our teaching team that really gave me the words to express what I see going on in the world right now. And it's the word chaos. And here's the definition of the word that I found that really made this word resonate with me. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Chaos is defined as a situation in which everything is confused and in a mess. I don't know where you are today, but when I look around me, specifically when I think about what's happening in our nation, the definition that I've just given you completely summarizes what I feel is happening around us, and it's chaos. Yet here's the irony. No matter who you ask today, there is probably much agreement that our nation is in a state of absolute confusion and in a mess, while at the same time, there is much disagreement as to why it's in such a mess. We can all agree that there's chaos. We can all agree that things are a mess. But when you look around us today, there's a lot of disagreement as to why we're in such a mess. As a nation, we are polarized and divided as much as any time I remember in my lifetime. And this reality, this chaotic reality, is true even for God's people, the church. Unfortunately, this polarization and division is not just something that's happening out in the streets of our country, but it's also happening inside the walls of the church. We're living in the age of discipleship that is happening more through 24-hour news channels and social media posts than through a right understanding of truth as God has revealed in His Word. Unfortunately, today we question God's truth while we quickly accept as fact the random post of a stranger or the spin of a pundit on cable news. But I want to encourage you today. This is not unique to us. It's not unique to our generation. As a matter of fact, 2,000 years ago, 
the eternal redemptive mission of God took a cataclysmic step when God sent His Son into the world. God had made a promise to His people, Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, that He would send a Messiah into the world. And for generations, you can read it in the Old Testament, for generations God's people had awaited this glorious event, the coming of a Messiah. They longed for the coming king. They hungered for the promised kingdom. And finally, through the womb of the Virgin Mary, God became a man. Jesus came into the world. The king had come, but he came into a world of chaos. Everything, much like today, physically, socially, politically, was confused and in a mess. So early in his ministry, Jesus did something to respond to the chaos. He led his disciples up onto a mountain, away from the noise, to teach them about life and the kingdom of God. That teaching on that hillside with those disciples having been pulled out of the noise of culture for an afternoon is contained for us in the Bible in something that's been called the Sermon on the Mount. Arguably the most famous sermon ever preached. If you have your copy of God's Word tonight, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 5 because the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And today we are beginning a series where we're going to study through the opening section of that sermon that's been labeled the Beatitudes. Now, what Jesus does through the Beatitudes is he challenges his disciples with some radical declarations of kingdom living that will result in contentment in the midst of the chaos. And I want to read you this section of Scripture. We're not going to unpack all that I'm going to read this weekend. We're going to be doing it over the next several weekends. But I want to read the first section of this sermon called the Beatitudes. And I want you to listen for these radical declarations that Jesus gives us. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Listen to what it says. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain... And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed. We'll study this in the weeks to come, but that word blessed is a word, it's a Greek word that could literally be translated satisfied, content, happy. Blessed. Are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit 
the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those words contain for us the Beatitudes. Those words call us as citizens of God's kingdom to a radical way of of life. And I want you to listen to that list. I want you to hear those words carefully. We're going to unpack them over the next several weekends, but this list is not a list of characteristics that's often celebrated in the culture that we live in. Meekness, gentleness, righteousness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, poor in spirit, peacemaking, Those are the characteristics of the kingdom. They describe the the distinct reality of the life of Christ being manifest through our lives. They describe what it looks like for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. One writer writing about these words that I've just read for you is a man named Stuart Briscoe. Listen to what Stuart said about this section of Scripture. One of the tragedies to befall our nation and other nations is this. Christians have lost their distinctiveness. It means we're just like everybody else. Because they have, society as a whole has lost the Christian voice. As a result, society has lost its salt It's guiding light. It has lost its city set on a hill. The example that Jesus said Christians were to be, perhaps the way to national revival, is not to try to superimpose upon a lost society principles that they will never be able to accept. Rather, the way to national revival is to get Christians once again to begin to adhere to the social, moral, and ethical standards set forth in the Sermon on the Mount, the norm for Christian experience in the midst of a lost society. Listen, Stuart Briscoe wrote that in 1978. How much more true is that today? You know, one of the great problems in America today is that the church, the people of God, have lost their voice because we've lost our distinctiveness. And what Jesus was doing with his disciples on this day in the midst of the same kind of noise, and I'm going to show you that, I'm going to prove that to you in just a minute. Jesus calls them to a radically different way of life. 
So how do we respond in the midst of the chaos? Well, I want to start by just looking at the first two verses. We're not going to get to any of the blessed statements tonight, all right? We're just going to look at the first two verses of Scripture. Let me read those two again. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he, after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. That's where we're going to focus this weekend as we look at three things that Jesus did in the midst of the chaos. Here's the first one. Jesus was aware of the chaos. Did you hear the first phrase? When Jesus saw the crowd. Jesus saw the crowd. Now, in the, in the Greek New Testament, there are many different words that are translated into the English language as to see something or to say, I saw that, or to watch. Many different Greek words. This is a unique Greek word in that this word in particular implies more than just the act of seeing something. It means to see and perceive, to see and take notice. Let me try to explain the difference. Uh, about a week or so ago, my wife and I had our two grandchildren stay at our house for two nights and three days. And I was reminded again, while having children is a young person's game. Amen. Two nights and three days, hallelujah. I'm glad to be a grandparent and not a parent of small children any longer. But we had our two grandchildren for two nights and three glorious days. And on one of those evenings, our oldest granddaughter, Karis, she loves to perform. She likes to perform. doesn't matter what. She can be singing. She can be dancing. She can, be, she can take a fake microphone and start telling jokes. Whatever it is, she loves to perform. And it was one of those nights when she was doing this. She was singing, I mean, to the very top of her lungs. She's just walking around the house, and she's singing and singing and singing and singing and singing. And she comes up, and she says, Big Dad, Big, Big Poppy, did you, did you see me? And I'm thinking, how could you not have seen you? I think people outside our house saw you. She said, no, Big Poppy, did you see me? She was not asking if, I, if, I, if she somehow caught my attention. She was asking if I noticed, if I leaned in, if I was watching. That's the word here, Jesus saw the crowd. He didn't just observe a crowd of people. He learned something about them when he looked at them. He took notice. He saw them. And what he saw caused him to respond by pulling his disciples up on a mountain to talk to them. What did he see? He saw chaos. There was chaos, first of all, physically. If you back up two verses from what we just read into chapter 4... In Matthew chapter 4, listen to what the Bible had just said was taking place. In verse 23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread all through Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. The language of those two verses is loaded with severity of physical chaos taking place. 
Let me show you three phrases that speak to the severity of what was going on. First of all, those words, disease and sickness. One Greek scholar said when they're used combined as they were in verse 23, they always refer to something severe, dangerous, or even violent. One Greek scholar said they often refer to a plague that has broken out among the people and nobody has a solution as to how to stop it. Another phrase, they said they were bringing all who were ill. That phrase, all who were ill, in the Greek language, it's literally those who had it bad. And what that implies is these are those who were so sick, doctors had no answer for them. Doctors had no solution. There was no prescribed medication. There was no treatment. There was no course of action to bring healing to them. They had it bad. The third phrase is the phrase suffering. It describes someone being squeezed. What the Bible is describing that's taking place here that Jesus saw among the multitudes is a physical chaos. People's Lives are being ravaged by sickness. Even with all of our advanced medical technology in 2020, a simple virus brought the world to a sudden and drastic stop. In Jesus' day, the context of the Beatitudes, things were equally as bad, if not worse. You see, the physical pain and suffering in Jesus' day, these diseases, most of them that we read about here, have now been eliminated from human existence. And yet in this period, they were still dominating and devastating people's lives. There was physical chaos, but not just that. In the context of Matthew chapter 5, there was political chaos. Say, so what do you mean by that? Jesus came into the world at the time of Roman domination. If you research 2,000 years ago in the first century, wherever you research it historically, you will find out that it was a period when Rome dominated the world. I looked this afternoon on PBS's website about this period of time, and here's what they said. 2,000 years ago in the first century, the world was ruled by Rome. Roman Uh, Roman rule had taken over the known world, and they were large and in charge. Specifically, they had taken over rule of God's people, the nation of Israel. They'd set up shop in Jerusalem. And the people of God were seriously divided politically over the occupation of Rome among the nation of Israel. Let me describe it for you. There were two ends of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum among the people of God was what was called the zealots. You remember reading in the Scripture, there are people that are called the zealots. Uh, As you read names in the Bible, sometimes they're identified as one of the zealots. What was a zealot? A zealot was a fervent proponent of Israel's national independence. They hated the occupation of Rome. They were a militant 
anti-Roman revolutionary faction equally religious and political in their motivation. The zealots regarded themselves as agents of divine judgment and redemption. For them to do the will of God meant change politically. They had so interwoven their faith with their politics that they had no room for any activity of God that did not involve political change. That was the zealots. One historian said the zealots hated the Romans and their goal was to overthrow the Roman occupation. They advanced their agenda primarily through terrorism and superpetous acts of violence. The zealots were organized, they were militant, they were violent, and they were loud. On the other side of the spectrum, were the biblical characters we know as the tax collectors. Also Jews, also people of faith, also people that followed the one true Job, just like the zealots. The tax collectors were people that were Jews that embraced the Roman occupation. They were not against Rome. As a matter of fact, they'd gone into business with Rome. They thought their future of advancement and achievement was tied to the prosperity of Rome. When we hear tax collector today, we think about somebody that works for the IRS. But that's not what the tax collectors were in this day. Tax collectors in this day were independent agents who had purchased a franchise certificate from the Roman government. That franchise certificate allowed them to be collectors of taxes that they passed on to Rome. But it also gave them the freedom to extort as much money as they wanted to on top of the taxation to keep for themselves personally. The tax collectors were the most hated and vilified people in Israel. They were viewed as sellouts and as traitors. That's why when you read about them in Scripture, the Bible often describes them in a group, tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> These two extreme political factions divided God's people and became the filter through which many of them viewed God's plan and God's purpose. I want you to hear that. God's people divided into two extreme political factions in the first century and depending on their political view, it shaped the way they saw God's plan and God's purpose. Does that sound vaguely familiar? The political agendas of our day should never define our view 
of the plans and purposes of God. There was chaos physically. There was chaos politically. There was chaos spiritually. Let me show it to you. A couple of chapters later, listen to what Jesus says. It says about Jesus, when he saw the people, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. These words describe a people whose lives have been devastated and defeated by sin and false religion and pseudo-spirituality. They are hopeless and in need of a Savior. So get this, in the first century, Jesus comes into a world that is being ravaged physically by disease and by sickness and by illness. It's being divided politically with extreme positions and, and interweaving their faith and their political views. And it's being ravaged and devastated spiritually. Jesus stepped right into the middle of a chaotic situation. Everything was a mess and confused. Well, what did he do? Well, let's look next what it says. When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain. Now that tells us a couple of things. The word went up means to go up or to ascend, and it obviously tells us that Jesus left where the crowd was and he took his disciples up on a hill. They went up on the mountain. But if you're a student of Scripture, you understand that this tells us also something else. You see, every time in Scripture Jesus went up on the mountain, Jesus went up on the mountain to seek the heart of the Father. Every time we read about Jesus going up the hill or going up the mountain, it was to seek the heart of the Father. Get this. In the midst of the chaos, the response of Jesus was not to run to CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or Twitter or Instagram or Google or Facebook. His response was to run to the Father. He rose above the noise of culture to hear the heart of the Father. As citizens of the kingdom, we need God more and noise of the culture less. Let me say that one more time. As citizens of the kingdom, we need more of God and less of the noise of our culture. But what's happening inside the church is we're allowing social media and the 24-hour hour news cycle to become the primary discipleship agent in our life. It is shaping our worldview, and it is twisting our views of faith in alignment with political agendas, and in doing so, we are falling right into the trap of the enemy. If we're not careful, as the people of God, we're going to walk out of this with a brand of syncretism where we've so woven our political ideology with our faith, we don't know where one stops and the other one starts. And that is not what we've been called to as citizens of the kingdom. So, but here's, here's, the, here's the challenge. The natural drift is more toward noise of culture than it is to hear the voice of God. So what do we do? We need to make some changes in our life. Let me, I don't want to spend much time here, but let me give you two practical ones I've made in my life in the last month. One of them I made about a month ago with the help of my wife. We talked through it, and I, I, I was the type of person that my phone was with me all the time. 
Like when I went to bed, the last thing I did at night is plug my phone in on my nightstand, and there it is within arm's reach of my body all night long just in case I, I, I need a fix. The first thing I would do when I'd wake up in the morning is grab the phone and scan the headlines. So here's what I did. And I'm not saying my conviction has got to be your conviction. You've got to find, I did something I hadn't done in 10 years. I bought an alarm clock. <laughs> you know, it's a clock that sits on your nightstand. I bought an alarm clock. So when we go to bed, I leave my phone plugged in my office downstairs and I don't see my phone again. Now, the first couple of nights, I couldn't hardly sleep. Because <laughs> I was wondering what, what was happening on my phone. Why did I do that? Because I need more of God and less of the noise of culture. I'll tell you something else I decided. And this one I just decided this week in preparation of this message. But God convicted me with, with some of this stuff. And here's what I decided. No phone or outside input before God time. When I wake up in the morning, just because it's downstairs doesn't mean the first thing I do is run downstairs and grab my phone. I need to be with Jesus before I hear the noise of culture. you got to decide some ways for you to determine how to do that in your own walk and in your own life. you got to figure out your own boundaries. But what I'm telling you is in moments of chaos... More than anything else in life, we need the Father. We are desperate for God. Jesus saw the crowd. He saw the chaos. He said to the disciples, we got to get out of this noise. Let's go up to the mountain. Let's get the heart of the Father, and let's live as kingdom citizens. John Piper said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Everybody all right? <laughs> Number three, here's what Jesus did. He saw the chaos. He was desperate for the Father. Get this. He called his followers to a radical way of life. Do you hear what it said? He saw the multitudes, saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. His disciples came. And listen, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. He began to say, listen, I've called you to another way than that. The word teach here is a word that specifically means to instruct by word of mouth. Jesus began to speak to them about another kingdom. A kingdom that he came to establish. A kingdom that they would be used to begin to launch and to build. Derwin Gray, a pastor friend of mine, wrote a book called The Good Life. In it, listen to what he said. The Beatitudes are a description of how God's kingdom enters man's realm and transforms it. The Beatitudes are a picture of what God's people under His rule and reign of grace live like on earth. They are the ethos of heaven invading earth. Hear my heart. I love America. I thank God for the privilege of being born 
in this country. I am grateful for my grandfather who fought in two wars and served an entire career in the military defending the freedoms that we enjoy in this land. However, America is not where my ultimate allegiance lies. You see, we are citizens of another kingdom. We are temporarily passing through this land. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I love this country, but as great as America is, America is not the hope of the world. And listen, I don't care if you're on the Democratic side or the Republican side. Neither side are the hope of the world. Only Jesus is the hope of the world. And you and I have not been called here to be change agents in America. We've been called here by Jesus to be ambassadors of his kingdom. And as ambassadors of his kingdom, we've been called to live differently. Poor in spirit peacemaking, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. David Platt wrote about these verses this way. We all have our own picture of what it looks like to be a Christian. Certain behaviors that fit and certain ones that do not, or certain attitudes that we ought to possess to be a Christian in our particular culture. Perhaps that means being of a particular political persuasion, aligning ourselves with certain groups within Christian subculture, and so on. Yet, for us in our day, Jesus repaints this picture better Jesus has already painted the picture, and it's for succeeding generations to make sure their conception of the Christian life matches the one painted on the Galilean hillside long, long ago. I want to close by reading to you from Matthew chapter 10. Verses one, or excuse me, verses two, three, and four, we find Matthew's list of the disciples. The original twelve. And having heard what I've shared with you tonight, I want you to listen carefully to his list of the twelve. Matthew is the only one who lists the twelve this way. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot. Did you hear it? Two men from extreme 
political worldviews. Two men whose political ideology could not have been more different. One of them before Christ would literally have desired to kill the other one. And yet in Christ, it's now his brother and his co-laborer in the great mission of the kingdom of God. You see, what had divided them was not as big a deal as what now united them. What had divided them was temporary. When's the last time you cared about Roman occupation? What divided them was temporary, but what united them is eternal. I have a good friend who's a pastor in North Carolina. His name is Derwin Gray. We've become friends in recent days. Derwin tweeted something the other day that, man, it lifted my spirit. Listen to what he said. Derwin said, out of the chaos and dysfunction of American Christianity, God the Holy Spirit is raising up a love your enemies justice-seeking, pro-all-of-life, multi-ethnic missionary community of disciples, like a rose growing through the concrete, and she will be beautiful. You say, Pastor, how can you be sure? Because I've read the end of the story. And let me tell you what it says in Revelation chapter 10, excuse me, 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from, get this, every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom. Listen. God is at work in this world redeeming a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you and I have been invited to get in on that mission. Do not exchange the supremacy of that mission for anything else in life. That's what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. And we're going to unpack this in the days and weeks to come. Before I close this, let me just say this. There's a message of that kingdom, and here's the message of that kingdom. It's called the gospel. And the gospel says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far from God you may be. Jesus came into this world. and He came into this world as God 
He became a man, took all of your sin and my sin on himself. And on a cross, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead so that you and I, by faith in him, could be forgiven of our sin and be given a relationship with God. And you can have that today by faith. All you have to do is cry out to God in faith. Admit you're a sinner and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that before, I invite you today to do that.